Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and our understanding of the ways that animals are part of our world. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network is partnered with my other enterprise, the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the remarkable bond between dogs and their people. I'll be taking the festival across the United States, including Washington, D.C., Rochester, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Phoenix. I hope to see you in East Hampton, New York on August 2nd and at the second annual Dog Film Festival in New York City, October 15th. You can find more information at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their Cats in the Kitchen, their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend, and all varieties of canned Waruva for cats and little dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I have three great ladies with me here today. One of them is someone whose son I've interviewed on The Bond. You can hear Matthew Talbot on The Bond, a very young man who has done so much good works, all of it led by his mom, Karen Talbot, Animal Aid USA, Really an extraordinary group of people that go down south from New Jersey. We're going to hear from her. Allison Denley, the trainer of the show, I want to discuss vocabulary and words that we use to describe dogs that can be really negative unnecessarily and maybe brand them for life or even for death just because they're misunderstood. And then we'll talk to Gail Bordrein, who is a groomer on Park Avenue who goes to people's apartments. And uh, how to get your dog over being fearful about being groomed is one of the many things she and I will talk about. Karen Talbot, thank you for taking time from the unbelievably time-consuming work you do going from New Jersey down to the south and bringing back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dogs month in and month out. Congratulations for your years of success. Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me on your show. I really look forward to uh participating. Well, I really look forward to meeting the lady I've seen in, in all sorts of videos about Animal Aid USA. You started out, as I understand it, and I'd love to hear it in, as I say, your own words, from the dog's mouth, not the horse's mouth, right? How did you start out going, oh, oh, there's all these homeless dogs and, and litters of puppies in cardboard boxes by the side of the road, and we don't have any puppies here in New Jersey or mostly in the Northeast, hardly any, for adoption. And you must have started with uh, one dog or one mom and babies, and now you have more than 30 volunteers and this big fancy rig that you've raised the money and outfitted so that you can bring back all these dogs safely in very comfortable cages and hook them up with fosters and adopters. How how did you start? Um, I've always had a a love and passion for animals from the time I was little. I used to police my my neighborhood at 
10 years old and ride my bike and come home and say, I don't like that this dog is on a chain. Seriously. Um, Seriously. Seriously. And I used to rope, I used to rope my stepfather into coming to those houses and knocking on the doors and saying, you know, my daughter um, doesn't think you're, you're treating your dog well. Um, Karen, it gives me, it gives me chills. There's all these organizations (laughs) now where two or three of them dogs off of chains and so forth. And, and, mm-hmm. and the one in Suffolk County that, that uh, Candy Udell has, has started or joined forces with the Suffolk SPCA that brings doghouse igloos to people whose dogs have no, no, uh, no shelter. But what a great stepdad. He, he made a voice for you and you thought, hey, I could do the same thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Was he yeah, not afraid uh, of getting punched out? Because, I mean, that is a very, a very likely possibility. Well, yeah, I mean, it almost happened a couple times. Um, but then he was dealing with me as a stepdaughter who would not take no for an answer <laughs> with anything. So I guess he figured my wrath was worse as a 10-year-old <laughs> child than being punched by something. I love so. that. You know, it's really quite extraordinary. There, I, I have found over the years of doing this show, there are all of us say, oh, we loved animals when we were little. Oh, I really loved earthworms and bunnies and stuff. But somebody who wanted to right a wrong. Now, that's a very interesting thing to feel as 10 years old. Very unusual to, to know that there's a wrong going on and you want to right it. Unusual, right? Yeah, unusual, yeah, but natural. It came natural. I mean, I yes, didn't think course. it was unusual at the time. It just came right. natural for me. Right, right. So you went on to to get through school and not spend every waking minute policing the neighborhood. <laughs> at what point in your life did you actually put your hands on a dog who was going to be put to sleep or just abandoned and and bring them to safety? Because that's what you that's what you've now dedicated your life to and inspired all these people to do with you, a lot of people, including your son, who's been pretty devoted since he was nine. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty much where it started. Um, I met my husband, Dante, when Matthew was five years old. Matthew um, um, was, I'm a, I was a single parent for five right. years okay. with Matthew. Um, and then Dante came into our life. And, uh, of course, I said, you know, we need to get Matthew a puppy. And at the time... I didn't realize what existed outside my bubble. And if I had wanted a yellow lab puppy and couldn't find any in any of our shelters um, here, then naturally you would buy a yellow lab yes. puppy. I, I, I didn't know different. And um, uh, we bought our first yellow lab puppy, but I knew enough not to go to a puppy store. Um, and so my sister researched different breeders and we found a breeder in North Carolina and it was the mom and dad on the property running free. And nice. so we bought our first puppy named Pooh, Poupon, but we shortened it to Pooh, like Winnie the Pooh. Right. And that was Matthew's first puppy when he was five years old. Um, and then uh, a couple months later, I discovered online um, gas chamber use in this country. And we we kill animals in gas chambers. And I was appalled. And I started to, to I, I didn't believe it at first. So I started to research it, and lo and behold, there was this whole world outside my little bubble yes. that I didn't know existed, and I started to network with different people online from Georgia and gas chamber rescue groups, and I felt so incredibly guilty that they were actually putting yellow lab puppies in gas chambers to kill them. I was I was heartsick, and I said to my husband, um, Dante, listen, I know that we bought poo. And I feel so guilty. I love her to death. But we need to rescue a dog now. And so he was like, <laughs> okay. 
So we rescued Winnie, and Winnie was a yellow lab coonhound puppy that was a, that was about an hour away from being put in a gas chamber, and so she was transported to us, and um, you know that just put me into the world of rescue um, because I was educated at that point. I, I I I had the awareness, and I would never buy again. So I don't fault people today in buying. Um, until they know. If you know everything that happens to animals and you still purchase a puppy from a puppy mill breeder, then then that's when all respect is lost. But for those people who don't know and are educated and then change their ways, kudos. You know, we got we got another one that crossed over to to this side. But we also so, know that there still are breeders like Poupon's owners. Oh, yeah, mom and, dad. and that's okay, too. And I've always said, and I'm sure that you in rescue that see nothing but abandonment and even abuse and death that's unavoidable. It's hard for you to wrap your head around someone buying. My feeling is education is really important. You can't go on the Internet. You can't go into a pet store. There's still lots of decent, responsible breeders, but they have one litter a year. Two liters a yes. year maximum, so that's really not going to fill the need in the United States. No, where you know not. thousands of people a minute want a puppy. But I would yeah, say, yeah, absolutely. And so, if if anyone has purchased a dog, there is no shame on you, unless you really did go to that place on Lexington Avenue and Sixty First right. Street and buy something out of the window that you know came directly from a Missouri puppy mill. But you can still right the wrong. By adopting. I think what's incredible about Animal Aid USA, because you've gone to Georgia, and one of the films in the Dog Film Festival actually is is about a very small rescue, in, you know, very impoverished rescue, saving these dogs of all sizes and shapes and bringing them to the Northeast with the help of the amazing transporters. I guess one of them was an amazing transporter who brought you Winnie. And I guess the idea that it's at least you can balance the universe by adopting as quickly as possible, but you guys actually bring puppies back. And to people that are eager for a puppy, that's really extraordinary. Because not only are we not killing little babies, but we're putting babies into homes, and it's one less puppy mill dog that's churned out of that factory, right? Absolutely. Yep, 100%. Um, We developed this uh, relocation model and made it... um, Very, very user-friendly, if you will. I researched for years um, the different uh, humane societies and uh, 501c3 rescues in my own communities and tri-state area that have been pulling dogs from out of state for years. Uh, They're experts in their community. They know what adopts out in their community. And so I approached them with the idea of a self-contained relocation model in which we would take all of the logistics out of it. We would provide fully vetted, adoptable, healthy animals on wow. our dollars through grants and through donations. And we would deliver them to the doorsteps of these receiving rescues. Wow. And they would then adopt them out and they would make the adoption fee because they are the experts. That and is what brilliant that- because they already had a list of people calling mm-hmm. in or writing in saying, do you have any puppies? Do you have any labs? Mm-hmm. Do you have anything little? That was brilliant. So you were able to create a supply chain for a demand that couldn't really be met by these these nonprofits because if there are no abandoned puppies in, in New Jersey or Connecticut or New York, you can't really so give them a puppy. Yeah, absolutely. But the most important part is um, we took the logistics out of it because everything is is um, self-contained, whereas they 
I send them pictures. Like, for instance, we just returned home yesterday with 201 animals. I had wow. six vans and 30 volunteers come with us. Now, when you say vans, these are people's own vans that are then fitted no, up with crates? No, no. We own uh, four vans within our fleet, and we wow. rent it, too. Um, and so volunteers come with us. Um, and uh, in the vans go the immune-compromised dogs or the moms with nursing puppies. Oh. That, um, uh, and so they're not in the general transport trailer of ours. Um, and and it, it's, it's a journey that changes the lives of the humans as well because yes. we're taking them to places that they never knew existed. And we're in. We're accepted through a lot of perseverance on the Georgia end. I mean, when we were first going down there, we we didn't they didn't even make eye contact with us some of the people because they couldn't understand why we would come down there to save something that is just a varmint to them or you know you ain't got no business coming down here and you know like we and after time we said we're not here to point fingers at you we're here to help and so over time it really just paved the way for acceptance for us so little by little, I mean, the mentality and the culture is changing so much. Baby steps, but it's changing. I mean, we're accepted now into communities that are so rural that it's bad. It's really yeah. it's bad when, when, you know, another county over says, I can't believe all you all go over to that county. We don't over, even go over to that county. No and, kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, we're totally accepted because we aren't pointing fingers. We're just there to help. And to save, to educate, to bring awareness, to bring supplies, to bring anything they need. We fully supply the food for a county shelter down there. They have no money. It's, it's so poor that if you're not even feeding your own family, you're not yes. thinking about feeding animals. And so we don't point fingers. We just bring the supplies. All of those vans on Thursday when we left were filled with supplies. It and then, and then you leave the supplies and you return uh -huh. filled with adoptable, with, even filled unhealthy with dogs. dogs, as long as you're transporting. No, them. they're they're all 100% healthy. They are all, um, they all have their health certs. We have a team of vets on the Georgia end. Wow. Every animal who crosses state lines with us has a health cert. We're the only group in the country that holds two licenses, one in-state, one out-of-state Department of Agriculture. I have dog haulers licenses for Pennsylvania. I have a Pennsylvania out-of-state wow. out kennel license. Everything is like above and beyond. And we created this model to be that gold stamp seal of approval with transport. And if, if a dog or a puppy is coming through our organization, you know that it's, it's full transparency, full disclosure, and, and we're behind it 100%. Because there's a lot of unscrupulous rescues and transporters out there that give good people bad things. And that's so, an, that's um, an interesting point. I had I've, Just to ask you, you had said that some of the dogs in the smaller vans are immune compromised. So what would immune that... Immune compromised, okay. Um, if they've had heartworm treatment, uh, if they've right. had heartworm injections. I certainly don't want to put them in a stressful environment. Yes, because they want have to, to have stay them... very calm. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to keep them in the nice, you know, small van with with um, our volunteers. And um, and so that it works out that way. And a lot of times in the vans, you have foster parents on the Georgia end who take these animals in off the, off the streets 
at the brink of death. Nurse come back to health. And of course, letting go is so hard, but it's part of the process because there's 20 more waiting. Yeah. But they'll say, Care, can, can this one ride in the van? Aww. Can you please bring this in the van? And we accommodate any of the people on that end that, that have special requirements or requests for their animals. Of course they can ride. They can ride under the pillows and blankets with us because each one of my vans is fitted out with crib-sized mattresses and beds and pillows and blankets for the humans. So one person drives and one person sleeps. I mean, it's oh, a rolling slumber wow. party. Wow! You know, mm-hmm. what's incredible is the human lives that you're touching so that all of the privileged people on, on the northeastern end see just how hard life can be for people that, you know, when I was growing up, you would refer to Appalachia. And you would think of that as a place where people yes. were kind of shoeless and the people were unvaccinated and the people didn't have dental care. And the people, you know, were just impoverished. And that poverty still exists in this country. Yes, so you're opening the eyes of people in the Northeast and great if yeah. they bring their kids like you brought yours. But the people in Georgia also don't feel forgotten. No. Even though you're really no. just there helping animals, you are recognizing and, and thanking them for what they're doing to be part of the solution. And they are forgotten people. I mean, forget the 1% versus the 99%. These people are so far, it sounds like, below a poverty line that, you know, that animals having wanton puppies left and right, it's just part like, it's like birds having a nest of eggs. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything to mm-hmm. them. And we, we imbue each of these little creatures with, you know, individual personalities and needs and what have you. What about spay neuter? Are you able to, to get some of that yes. done? We've actually, um, every one of our receiving rescues, um, to be part of our self-contained model, um, animals must be spayed and neutered before they're adopted out. Uh, We've also provided two fully equipped spay and neuter mobile clinics to the Georgia end. We took a vet in the county to do rescue vetting at low cost for community members. Um, And so what really strikes home is we might not be making a dent right now. Uh, I'm not going to get it right in my generation. I'm not. But my son will be getting it right. Because if we take 13,000 animals that we have rescued since we've started this whole process, and we divide that number into half. Let's just say 6,000 of those animals were female. And they were spayed, okay? The males are all neutered as well. But for for this Reproduction analogy. Reproduction reasons, right. Yes. Um, all of the uh, logistical charts from the Humane Society of the United States and the ASPCA that put out there, one unaltered female over the course of six years, along with all of her offspring, have the potential of recreating uh, 67,000 unwanted births. So if we take 67,000 births and multiply that by 6,000 females we've just fixed, Matthew is not going to grow up in a world with all of these unwanted animals like I grew up in. Right. So I might not be making that dent right now because every month there's still 200 more. I just got home yesterday. We've already got 40 puppies at our facility down there that just came in yesterday on no so no yeah you leave leave with the 200 dogs and 40 brand new puppies are are waiting for next month Mm -hmm. wow absolutely um and then in the interim that isn't even enough what we do with our trip we have a run that goes to florida every two every month two weeks after our trip 
So every two weeks, not only do I have my run down there personally, but then we send a van from Georgia to Florida to deliver about 50 dogs and puppies. So our flow is continuous. We've been doing this every 28 days of our life since January of 2011. It's really extraordinary, Karen. We've run out of time, but Animal Aid USA is an experience that I'm sure any volunteer would be welcome. Go to Animal Aid USA, the website, Facebook, all that. Hook yourself up with this, folks. I mean, if you all you want is a puppy, that's okay, too. You could volunteer and just get a puppy out of it. But you get a puppy who otherwise would never have a home. I, I think it's extraordinary, Karen, and I think... The organizational part of it is what I, I'm the most impressed about because of the legality, because of you having crossed all of the T's and dotted the I's and making this so above board. And as you said, doing this so well that if somebody else had your energy and your dedication from age 10 until now, they could do it really well, too. But in the meantime, Animal Aid USA, I would say, is really uh, in a class by itself. I, I've loved talking to you. I want to sign up for a puppy, but we'll discuss that later. <laughs> I just think it's fa- fabulous. And actually, I could take a mom. I, it doesn't need to be a oh, puppy. You take, you take yeah. care. Keep up this Thank great you. work. It's really fantastic. And anyone wants to hear about the next generation, Karen's uh, 16-year-old son, Matthew, I interview him on The Bond, and you can hear what, he, what his experience of all this is. Thanks so much, Karen. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Tracy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Allison Denley and Names not to call your dog. We'll be right back. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with Allison Denley, our trainer on Dog Talk, Allison's Dog Training. I read this article, Allison. Welcome back. It's been a while since we've talked. Thank you. Good to talk to you. So I read this article in the Bark magazine, often called the New Yorker of the canine world or some such phrase. And it was a very short article called The Power of Name Calling. And the person who wrote it had gotten a puppy, happened to give it the same name as my puppy, Maisie. Cute puppy, lovable, picked it out of the litter. And when it had a stick or a toy, it would growl and snarl and show its fangs in a really scary way. I mean, like really scary. So they got a dog trainer who was a harsh a dominance kind of trainer who put a headlock on the dog and said she was stubborn and used a bunch of negative language. Then they got a more, uh, uh, I don't know, work with the dog kind of trainer. They called it a behaviorist. And it, it turned out that they felt that this trainer felt 
This dog's behavior could be explained in a kind of instinctive way and could be changed in a positive way by doing tricks or toys or training or something. What, what would you, if you came to someone's house and they had this little puppy three or four months old and it was really nasty when you tried to take a toy away, what would that tell you? I mean, the po- point of the article was the dog shouldn't be called evil or vicious. They were going to give her back to the breeder. It's sort of changing your attitude by maybe thinking in a different way about a dog's behavior and finding a way to work with it or around it. Well, and I think it also depends on the family dynamics. Are there young children in the household? Can this behavior be managed while it's trained? Because if there are young children, then it becomes very dangerous to the children. That's a really good point, Allison. And they didn't make it in the article. That's a really good point. So, yeah, you could work with behavior you don't like if there's some dangerous quality to it, but then only the people in the house have to be adults who all back off and do what the trainer tells them to do, right? Well, yes, because if a child drops a a half a sandwich or a pretzel on the floor and bends down to pick it up, if that dog is, you know, as you say, possessive-aggressive and has decided, ha-ha, that pretzel is mine, the child is going to get bitten. Mm Mm-hmm. So the article article kind of soft-pedaled it. Gee, the problem was we had this harsh trainer. You wouldn't put a headlock on a dog, obviously. You wouldn't pin a dog down. No, my son is the wrestler. I'm... I am I am not the wrestler. <laughs> That's hilarious. There is some TV training that goes on. I've, I've tried yeah, to watch it for a few years where there's this flip the dog over, hold it down by the neck, cut off its air supply. I'm like, really? Uh, isn't that well, belong in the gym? Thankfully, I've, I've never been in that position. There, there are people that have, and I think that would be absolutely a last resort self-protection position. I don't see it as a training method. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, if you felt certainly. your life or your child's life was in danger. But the, but, yes. but what they said was that uh, according to this behaviorist, who they claim a behaviorist is different than a dog trainer, and you and I know that's kind of silly, right? I mean, that's just yes. another word for a dog trainer. But they they were charmed by the by the word that they said dog behaviors understand possession aggression as resource guarding and that a dog with a leadership quality, which is a positive spin on it, who would be a leader of their pack in the wild might have an instinct to guard and bury their food because they'd have to feed the pack later. But the point of the article was that labeling children, dogs, other ethnicities, races, or genders using negative words affects the way we feel and respond to them. So it's a kind of a spin based on the word we use. So if you called a dog with this behavior a possessive, aggressive dog or a resource guarder, do you think there's a difference in those two phrases? I don't. And both are equally and can be equally dangerous. Right. Because when you have guarding of resources or possession, some dogs, so I've met, worked with some people who think their dog is protecting them. When yes, actually good the point. dog is owning them like a bone. Yes. So certainly if I came in swinging a baseball bat, yes, I would want the dog to quote unquote protect the owner. But the perceived, the way the owners are perceiving protection is actually ownership. And that's where the the owner's leadership skills have fallen down and the dog, no one's really in charge. So the dog thinks they have to be. Right. And that's, Oftentimes, when you get a lot of this trouble, 
how I don't know where it started, where people thought it was a good idea to feed the dog and then take the food dog's food I away totally just because agree. they could. Yes. That's um, a really great point. Dinner- Explain that as a training technique. That that's, In fact, a really good breeder told me to do that with Maisie, with Wanda, when she was a little puppy who had... She didn't mind. She wasn't resource guarding. She had just to get her used to it, put the food down and then take it away and put it down and take it away. I'm like, why would I do that? Especially if she's right. really hungry, that would just give her a stomach ache. Yes. And it would also think, make her think, oh my gosh, I have to eat it really quickly. Because yeah. I don't never know when you're going to take it away. Yes. But if you walked over to the puppy and said, pop, puppy and dropped a little piece of cheese or a little piece of turkey in her food, She'd be like, gee, thanks. Right. Boy, I like it when you come near my dish. Right. Um, you know, if you set my dinner plate down and then two minutes later came <laughs> and took it away from me, you wouldn't get a second chance depending upon the day. <laughs> I'd depending, be hanging on to that plate. Depending on your, on your appetite and how good that meal was, you'd have exactly. your fork to stab into my hand the next time. Yeah, it's yes. a strange thing. And, and so here's a dog with a toy or a stick. Now, they say take it away and the dog morphed and snarled and showed her teeth. Well, there, there's different ways to take something away from a dog, leaving even aside the food. Why don't we talk about that? It is a good idea with a small puppy or a newly adopted dog to have them be willing to hand it over to you, but you do have to give them something else in exchange, right? It's kind of a, a, a hostage exchange, isn't it? Well, not really. With young puppies, I teach owners to... Um, over and over and over again, drop their toys for a little treat and then give them the toy back. Right. So dropping something is a win-win situation. Dogs learn by association. They don't generalize easily. But to the flip side of that, drop it always being a wonderful thing because it's a win-win situation, I teach the dog a leave-it command, meaning oh my gosh, don't eat that medication I just dropped, it will kill you. Right, or the turkey uh, bone. Yes, anything. It could be a puddle with antifreeze in the street. It could be a McDonald's bag on the side of the road. Right. Goodness knows what's in that. Yeah, scary. So it's two polar opposite things because the way I teach leave it is don't go near that, it could kill you. So first I teach drop it and make a wonderful association with drop it. And then with leave it, I actually do set the dog up to be corrected for going after I'll drop a napkin on the ground because no puppy can resist a napkin. That's funny. Um, And teach the dog, leave it. As soon as the dog understands, oh, you don't want me to go near that, then it's yes. And then I reward the dog. A really good reward because that's even harder to not even check it out. Checking it that's out and dropping exactly. it. Well, I had that's 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 actually a really good thing to teach. I I've often had dogs that when they get a really high value thing in their mouth, it's usually uh, in one case with Maisie, it was a rotting dead uh, wild turkey, and other times it's just the chipmunk recently killed on after hours of hard work. They will run away from you if they consider it really high value. So you want them to bring it to you. And if you can get them to drop it, well, not if you taught them to drop it, you have to give a really, really good treat because they're giving up something delicious. And And super high value to them. Yes, exactly. And and then, of course, the, the trick is 
what is high value. It's not just some dry biscuit. If you really want them to give up something that was is takes a lot of self-control to give up, it should be something meaty or cheesy or extra delish, don't you think? I think so, too. You know, if it's unsafe for the dog, um, whatever it has in the mouth, in its mouth, or if it's super important to you, like your telephone. <laughs> I, I actually had a good one yesterday. This will crack you up. People should definitely have a good laugh at my expense. So the two dogs were working at a wood pile where there was a chipmunk, and they were out there for hours. So when the puppy Wanda, at a year old, 75 pounds, is still a puppy to me, comes running into the dining room where I'm reading the paper, and I'm thinking that thing sticking out of her mouth is a chipmunk. So I'm like, okay, I really oh. hope it's dead, but I don't want it in the house running around if it's not dead yet. So I run to get a baggie that I'm going to scoop it up with. And I grab a handful of like really good cheese biscuits and I go, drop it. Good girl. And I go to pick it up and discover that it is actually the holder of my new Bluetooth thing from my phone. And the whole oh, no. is kind of sweaty outside and she crunched it. And hadn't ruined mm. the thing, but there was even like a little mirrored thing inside. I had to give her a really good treat because, yeah, she stole it at some point in the previous hour, yes. but she did give it up. So, I mean, she that's did. the hard part. Like you say, something that you really love, you the last thing you want to do is go, no, right? Because then they're right. like, whoa, something's bad. I better get out of here. Well, and human behavior being such, we see the dog with something. It's, you know, kind of, what do you have? Give me that. Right. We take it away. Right. What if we taught the dog? Well, I found a treasure. You came. You stole it away from me. <laughs> so I either have to run away from you and your eat it really quickly yeah. or get nasty to keep it. Exactly. And, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Yep. So it's, it's really about the training aspect and the relationship that you have with the dog. Um, you know, it's. Do you, do you want to go into the creating conflict with the dog or teaching the dog? I much prefer to teach the dog. And have a language. And avoid have, conflict. Have a communication yeah. that's two-way. So you've got a dog who has whatever they consider great, whether it's toy A or stick B or bone C. And you, you because you want a dog to be willing to give you something back without tricking them and making them unhappy – if you exactly. have a dog that snarls and shows teeth at the moment where you reach for it or ask for it, what do you do? Because what they did in this article was they must have kept trying to take it out of the mouth because they said that they had scratches and scabs on their arms. The dog actually bit them. And they didn't understand that they'd pushed that dog past some limit and forced it to bite. What would, what would you do instead with a dog who curled up a lip or snarled? When you came near, maybe it's a newly adopted dog. Even what would you? What's the best way to handle that moment? It's certainly not to insist upon it, but maybe not even to totally back off and leave the room. Is it? No, I don't know because then you've taught the dog that it when works. the dog gets nasty, haha, I get exactly. to keep it. Exactly. And over and over again, all I have to do is curl my lip, and mm -hmm. you back off. That's right. Or air snap, and yes. you back off. Yes. Um, and then the day you don't is the day that you're badly bitten. Yep. So again, it's never letting it escalate to that point. It's deconstructing it. And in that, that realm, I think sometimes labeling behavior, um, if you can accurately read the behavior is important, but it's also getting the, well, in my case, the client to understand what behavior, oh, she's just shy. Oh, she's just overexcited. 
oh, she's just this. No, that's not just what she is. <laughs> right. Because at the end <laughs> of the day, she's a dog who has to live by your rules and keep you yes. comfortable and safe. So yes. language is not there also to excuse a dog or let them off the hook. No. And it's, it's a way to accurately depict what the behavior is. But at the same time, um, I had a situation last week. I had done a consult. What I'm responsible for what I say. I can't be responsible for how you interpret or misinterpret or change around in your head what I say. So describe it. So sometimes people are um, very invested in a dog's behavior. And they want to see it. It's almost anthropomorphizing, putting human emotions on a dog. Right. Um, oftentimes I see this with dogs that are rescued, but they were, they were mistreated. They were beaten. How do you know that? Were you there? Right. Did exactly. someone tell you that story? Um, it may very well, in fact, be true. But I can't go with some story from the past. I have to go with the behavior the dog is presenting right in front of me. Right. So my difficulty was last week, the dog, dogs don't lie as a rule. If they do, I think that's dangerous um, for everybody because then the dog is misreading everything. So the dog first greeted me, wanted to kill me. The dog was on leash because that's how they have to introduce the dog because if you introduce them off leash, he'll bite. Nice. And it took about, I would say, 20 minutes of me being there for him to finally settle down. When I sat down, he, he was sound asleep. When I sat down, he woke up and went into charge mode again. And then he, I didn't move, and then he relaxed and fell asleep again. And when I uncrossed my legs, he was back up again. And when I leaned into the owner... A little bit because she was showing me something in a book. He again exploded. And she had said, well, see, he's overprotective of me. I said, yes, as if you were a meaty bone. You're his. He's claimed you. He right. owns you. He right. doesn't want we only me have one minute. We only near have, you. We only have one minute left, so you have to get to the punchline quickly, please. Well, so the punchline is um, everything that I had said in – as a trainer, I can't train a, a a behavior unless I know what the trigger is for that behavior. I can't train an incompatible behavior to it, but I have to understand why the dog is changing his mind 20 times in 20 minutes. Well, that And makes- she came away with the fact that um, her dog has Swiss cheese for brains. And Never that's in, she, in a and million that's years she, did I say that. she told someone else. Language really yes. matters. We've run out of time, but that is the point, that language matters. So how we describe a dog to a trainer um, and then the reality of what you find when you work with them can be something else yes. entirely. But they all can be worked with one way or another. We just have to, if dogs don't lie, neither should we. Allison Denley, thank you so Correct. much. Always thank such you. a pleasure to talk to you. Bye. Thanks Same so here, much Tracy. for being with us. We're going to a break. When we come back, I'll be back with Gail Bordrine and Park Avenue Grooming. We'll be right back. 
This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes, like Vigor, give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. I am back with somebody who knows an awful lot about how to make fluffy dogs look even fluffier. But what if you have dogs who hate grooming? What if you don't even know that there's a better way that your dog could be groomed? What if you don't even know the other things that a groomer might do for you? I met somebody through the marvel of the internet and email who knew that I love Bedlington Terriers. And that's how I met Gail Bordrine, who is the secret Park Avenue dog groomer. Well, that's not really what she's called. I'm calling her that. Gail, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to meet you because the privilege of New York City people having their groomer come to their apartment is pretty amazing. Have you always gone to people's homes? Did, were you ever in a, in a salon? Well, yes, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I actually worked in a salon many years ago, just for about six months, only to see what it was like. And I realized home home grooming was the way to go. Much nicer for the dogs, right? I mean, I had a friend who had chocolate poodles, standard poodles, and... One of them, I was with her one day, she said, well, I, I have to take Augie to the to the groomer now. And it was in the Berkshires. You know, you drive up in your car. It wasn't like some scary thing in, I don't know, in a small, cramped New York space. It was a big place. It looked like a doggy daycare. It might even have been. The dog was shivering from stem to stern. I said, you cannot leave this dog here, Maria. We, you, I'm going to show you how to groom at home. I was going to make it up. I, I mean, I used to groom my own Bedlingtons as a child. With a, I'm sure I actually didn't do that bad a job, and I did a good job on my cocker spaniel. But for me, they were Barbie dolls. What about yeah. dog? I mean, and, and if someone had been able to come to her house, it would have been a totally different story. Are are some of these dogs scared, Gail, because they're left um, under a dryer for a long time in a, in a veterinary type cage? Um, there's a whole lot of reasons why they shake before they go to a groomer. Some of them are bad, but some of them really aren't. The dog that goes goes to a, a brick-and-mortar store for grooming, they know you're going to leave them. They know they're going to get a bath. They know that there's going to be other dogs around right. that they don't right. know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's more than enough reason for them to start shaking. I've seen it all the time. It has nothing to do uh. with... They're afraid of the grooming. They're afraid the whole the whole experience right. is difficult for them. It's the whole gestalt. A- In other words, it's all those things together. You have multiple stressors, a lot of stressors. Yes, yes, yes. The great thing about a home grooming is that some of them even shake when they see me. They're like, oh, no, I'm getting a bath. Oh, for goodness but- sake. <laughs> and, I've, and for years and years and years, I groom the same dog. But here's the big part. The minute I'm done, I put them on the floor. They're in their own home. They're with their own people, and they become my best friends. They look at me like, where's my treat? And I love you. And then I get kisses, and and it's not – every stressor is gone. 
Well, I mean, I, I, my, my dogs, you'd go broke if you had to have clients who only had Weimar honors because they walk in the shower with me. We have a shower together. They use their Halo shampoo, and I use my – sometimes I've used the Halo shampoo, to be honest. I mean, it's nice pH. It might not be right for humans, but it works for me. And they get out, and they shake all over. Nothing like, I don't know, a pulley. Do you ever wash a pulley? There's so many breeds I want to ask you about. So you obviously <laughs> – dogs with fur and hair. I mean, all the Havanese and the Maltese and the Shih Tzus and the Poodles uh-huh. and the Poodle mixes and all of the all of the various Bichon Frises that the city's full of. I mean, you, you, you could never retire and just keep on grooming, right? I mean, that's a lot of dogs well, walking on dirty streets. The great thing about being a groomer is that anywhere I go, I can get a job. It doesn't matter. I could go to Alaska and I still could get a job. Really? Because, yes, every state in this country is always looking for groomers. Groomers are not, they're always in demand. Well, wait, now this is really good. So the next generation, Gail, sorry to interrupt, but I'm thinking I was always saying to people, you know, you should really be a radiology tech. You could go anywhere or an emergency room nurse. You could get a job anywhere. Well, I never thought of grooming. So is this a great career opportunity for people, people who say they love dogs, but they don't want to be a vet because they don't like needles and blood and whatever. I mean, grooming seems like, obviously, I'm hoping you totally believe that people should be properly trained and get a certificate. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, in order to, for me to, when I graduated grooming school, at that time, in the dark ages, right. I had to learn 136 degrees no. before I could graduate. No. Yeah. Can I, I t- had to oh, my look- God. Really? This is so funny. My sister has Brussels griffins, which are those mm-hmm. that, that don't know exactly what they look like it's a little beigey monkey face dog and it was in um the very famous jack nicholson movie as as good as it gets and the little cute dog that ran back and forth between the two apartments but you think well that's doesn't look so hard you know you wash them you give them a little trim well every time she's taken them to a new grooming place they're like oh what is that okay i'll look it up on the internet says the groomer i'm like (laughs) oh my god so are people graduating from school and and having like the fast track where you don't really have to know the different breeds because it makes a difference. If you groom a dog incorrectly for what the look is supposed to be and the person who owns them like them to sort of have the look that they set out to have, it takes a whole long time to grow back, right? It, well, it's actually they grow pretty fast. And, and, and the thing is that a lot of my grooming um, is not to what I call breed standards because people want their dogs groomed the way they want them groomed. Ah. I mean, I could walk in and they have a poodle and they say, oh, I want him to look like a schnauzer or they have a... <laughs> Seriously? You know, I Are never you know. And it, oh, my I'm goodness. Here. I have a client who has a poodle and I have to groom him like a um, Clydesdale horse, like take the saddle off and have the oh feet really fluffy. Goodness. That's what they want. It's not my job to say, well, no, it's not breed standard. That's, That's funny. What they want. So you can't always judge the groomer. That is hilarious. <laughs> and what color is that poodle? The poodle is black. I must say, what do you think about people that have white dogs in New York City? I'm just in shock. I mean, and then and I then they're in the it. bed. I'm, it's like you're happy because they should come. to – I mean, you should go to their house every other day. The dogs are just for years. Yike! It's oh, so yeah. dirty that city. I mean, my own shoes have to be you know like sanitized right, just right, from walking right. ten blocks. 
I I used to specialize in the Maltese, which oh. I mean, in the in the city, it's like a, a, a groomer's dream dog, because you know they just walk outside and they're filthy. Yes. But um, the new the newest one is Catans. Everybody's getting Catans now. So I, I aside from having a lot of Maltese, I have a lot of Catans. Now the Catan de Tulier is it very similar to a Maltese? But but the hair is no, more like a Bichon. Nothing. nothing like it. Yeah. They're small nothing. and white, no, they're, they're, but no flowing they're hair. They're white. Yeah, they have long flowing hair, but it's double coated. I mean, it's very, very thick. And they're, uh, to be honest, they're not as sweet as Maltese. Interesting. Maltese is better temperament. Good to know those of you out there that want a white fluffy dog. I thought Havanese was the go-to dog for New York City. I grew a tremendous amount of Havanese, and all my Havanese clients except one have two. Interesting. Oh, a friend of mine has one. I'm going to have to. And luckily, thank God, she lives on Park Avenue because that is your main. (laughs) That's your neighborhood. That's where you that you work that you work that avenue. I mean, the other great thing is that Amy Addis, who's such an extraordinary house call vet in New York and was the the official vet of the of the Dog Film Festival last year and and will be this year coming up. You know her. All of you house call people must totally know each other because you you must intersect in the in the lobby or in the elevator. We do. I mean, I know a lot of uh, I know a few home groom, home veterinarians. I know a couple of home groomers, but we really are very sparse. There's not a lot of us. So would you say so, to the to somebody of, of 10, 20, 30, 40 years old, that this is a really interesting and fun career, and if you want to do it, you, there's a demand? Why not? Oh, yeah, there's definitely demand. I um, I actually get phone calls now and then from grooming shops saying, are you available? Can you come in for one day a week? Or, you know, it, it's, it's, we're always in demand. And if you wanted to do house calls, that takes a little more effort. You have to be really good at what you do. Um, because you're going to have a much more demanding clientele. Right, right. And also you have to, word of mouth is, I mean, if anybody wants to find Gail, if you have any of these, any sort of a fluffy dog, any sort of a dog that needs, well, all dogs could use a bath, but if they need scissors and clippers beyond that, you can write to me at radiopetlady at gmail, and I will sneak you her email address. But but building (laughs) up a clientele through word of mouth, although I'm sure it happens with some rapidity, that takes a while to develop. It does, but my, uh, for me, I became very good friends with a couple of veterinarians, ah. and I would groom their dogs, and their dogs would run around their offices. Funny. And people would Advertisement. And, oh, my goodness. And that was the easiest way, and I still groom their dogs, but it's, um, I don't, you know, it's, it's all, it's a very, you know, the people, they all use the same florist, they all use the same... <laughs> caterer and they all use the same groomer it's the same thing oh god you gotta love it and i la is the same i'm sure chicago and detroit are the same too wherever you have people that have the 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 wherewithal to have somebody come to their house to give a service whether it's a pedicure for yourself or a pedicure for your dog um it really is the, the most privileged but a lot of people listening it's also affordable. I mean, it cannot be that much more than a salon. So if you have already taken on a dog and the responsibility for that level of grooming, it's just something you factor in. Speaking of pedicures, how often do people want the toenails painted? I remember back in the day, like many years ago, decades ago, you would see little poodles, not just with bows, but with pedicures. 
with with polish. Um, I'm grooming. I'm grooming for thirty five plus years. I have never been asked to paint the nails. What? Of the dog. You're kidding me! Never. Oh my god! If, never. if I had, if I was on Park Avenue and you would take me as a client. I would so paint my Weimaraner's toenails pink. I mean, it's my favorite color. I have a pink flash in my hair. No one's ever asked you? No. I do all kinds of beautiful bows. I match I match outfits. People say, well, I'm wearing blue today. Can oh you put my a blue goodness, bow in? Not that's a funny. They have, last week I matched, uh, or a couple weeks ago, a, a, a bright, uh, glittery, red bow to match the Valentine's Day outfit oh of the little Waltz. It was adorable. But, I mean, that I get asked all the time. And I do some very fancy poodle clips, um, that too. But Never toenails. No. What about... Do- well, I would probably do it. Sure. I mean, why not? I mean, they, they make it for... They even make paint, hoof paint for, for, uh, for horses, my, my friend... Bart Bambi, who lives in Sagaponic, when I first got my mini donkey, she sent me a, a jar of sparkling hoof paint. So I, <laughs> for the donkeys, glittery. She, people know me. I, you know, I'm a magpie. I think the glitters. I like it. Well, oh, I love that stuff too. What about what too. about when, dye? Have you ever dyed any, or does that only happen at like nope. grooming extravaganzas in Las Vegas, where they dye, they they sort of tie dye dogs? That's a whole genre on its own. I mean, there is a whole whole group of people that do all kinds of very intricate designs and very. I I, I don't do that at all. I um, I would love to learn it, but it's it's very complicated. It's really not easy. No, and it takes well, a nothing hu- about grooming is easy. <laughs> and, but it's very. It's also very time consuming. It is. I mean, I've seen at the, at, the, at the pet, like, super, super zoo in Las Vegas, there's a whole grooming uh, competition, like America's Got Talent, and they have to go yes. up on a stage, and they have to do things in front of you, so I guess to show how they actually did it. So here's a question. What do you take with you? So you're coming to my house. I have a, an eight-pound Coton de Tulier. Okay, that, that's not going to be the same equipment as if I have a Newfoundland, and, I mean, people do have English sheepdogs okay. in Newfoundland. So what do you take a drop cloth? Do you have, like, a... Do you have a special bag okay. with the bows in it? What comes with you? I actually have – I don't groom anything over 20 pounds. Oh, so pardon me. Why? Well, why? <laughs> I, I, I just can't. Physically, I can't be lifting those. It's just oh. too hard. So if it doesn't fit in the sink, I can't groom it. Right, because so, uh, otherwise you're I using have... someone's bathtub, and that's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's really hard doing it in the bathtub. Yeah. It really, it's breathbreaking. Yeah, yeah. But um, I have a suitcase, and in my suitcase, I have my clippers, my hair dryer, different brushes, a whole my my a whole list of um, of grooming blades that I use. I have dematters and combs and scissors and shampoo, and everything fits in that little suitcase. I even have a rubber mat that I put down. So the dog doesn't slip, and it's one, two, three. I can you do most dogs in an hour. Really, soup to nuts. Yep. And you're also soup to nuts. You're also cleaning their ears, and are you clipping their toenails? Oh, yeah. Also clipping toenails. Yep. Uh, what do you uh, do about toenails. what do you do about dogs that are really, really anxious about their toenails? I mean, I I've had a number of dogs over my life that it I have to have a second person sit there on the floor with them. 
and hold like Velveeta or some soft cheese so they have to try and lick it off their fingers while I quickly try and snip. That's obviously not really the style you use. So it, it, it depends. There are some dogs that you just can't. They're impossible to cut their nails. Actually, every single coupon I groom will not oh, let me cut their nails. I every see. one of them. And if you can't, you can't. I'd rather that and the people understand. They're like, I know he's crazy. He won't let me do it. And 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 periodically, walking in New York City, it keeps their nails at a right, good length. Anyway. Right, right. The sidewalks rub it off. Right. So most of the time, it's really okay. If it gets really, really bad, you know, they'll they'll take it to the vet and they'll they'll muzzle them or they'll they'll have two or three people working on them. But another way, which is really a good way, that the dogs, it's the sensation that they hate of the of the clipper clipping that nail, and they don't like to watch it. They don't like to see you coming at them oh. with that instrument. So sometimes. I bend the knee, bend the knee back at the ankle right, joint, right. so that I'm coming from the back, not from the front. So they really don't see what I'm doing. Oh, that's and then I a do clever idea. And what about the kind of clippers? I mean, there was there was one that's called the guillotine style that I think mm-hmm. is one that is not um, considered great. And I have one that's more like a, a pruner type of a thing. But then someone said to me recently, "Oh, Dr. Nick Dodman, when we were talking about dog behavior and." so forth he said they get very dull and if you've done three large dogs for a year with their big thick toenails it's they either have to go to a a professional sharpener or buy a new pair do you believe that well first of all it's not an expensive piece of equipment no no i i do replace it periodically but i i used to use the guillotine one all the time but i found that that sensation wise for the dog it's worse it's too much pressure. I use the one that you that you were talking about that you just because they come in different sizes, and I don't need a big one because they don't do big dogs. Right. So, boom! It's it's not hard. That that part's easy. So part and of the dogs, part of the reaction is the pressure on the quick. Even though you're not cutting the quick, you're you, there's pressure on that sensitive part of their toenail, and right. and so they're pulling away because of it. Right. I always tell people when they get a puppy, first thing, play with the nails, play with the feet, play with the toes, pull up, not pull hard, no, but right. touch those nails constantly so that they're never, so that when they finally get their first nail cutting, it's like, oh yeah, I, I'm used to this. I, I know what this feels like. Well, I think it's great advice and, and we've run out of time. It's I could ask you a billion more questions, but I will tell you that when I got Wanda as a puppy, I thought, oh, I finally got a puppy. So I had her in my arms and I played with her toes and I used a little human fingernail clipper because she little tiny puppy toenails. No problem, no problem until one day she hit puberty and she's like, what are you thinking about? I have never seen such a thing and I'm not doing it. So who knows? It's an, a very individual characteristic, right? True. Gail, it's wonderful to know that you have this profession, that you're out there, that I can actually send people to you should they be so inclined, but also to inspire other people. What a wonderful career and profession. Too much fun. Well, write to me. Anyone can write to me on Facebook or at RadioPetley at gmail.com. It's wonderful to meet you, Gail, and if anybody wants to know about Bedlington Terriers, Gail does rescue. She rescues herself, and there are lots of them out there, the little lambs that I used to have growing up. Now I don't have room for them. But it was wonderful that Bedlington's brought us together. Gail, thank you so much for spending time with us. 
my pleasure. Take nice care. To you too. Well, maybe okay. we'll bump into you on Park Avenue. Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. 